Good morning again. If you have a Bible with you, I'd invite you to open it with me to the 41st Psalm. As we continue this sermon series, it's been entitled Psalms of Hope. As we look through some of the Psalms in the 40s, we began a few weeks ago with the 40th Psalm. And then last week we did the first five verses of the 41st Psalm. And today the plan is, Lord willing, to finish the 41st Psalm together as we continue to seek and gain hope from the truth of the Word of God and the truth of who God is and what God does and how He does it. And just in full disclosure in the message this morning as we travel through these verses, I'll warn you that most of them don't seem all that hopeful right now. In fact, they may for at least a moment's time feel a little discouraging or cause us to be a little fearful. But I hope that by the time that we're done that That's not the case, that we truly find hope in God's glory, knowing that anything and everything that a believer walks through in this life has the potential to bring glory to God, that his desire, his end goal, his end game is his glory. And as we walk through difficult things, things that maybe situations where we maybe lose glory in ourselves, he gains glory for himself. And I think that that will give us some encouragement and hope. And so follow with me, if you will, in Psalm 41, again, beginning in verse 5 through verse 13. God's perfect inspired word says this, my enemies speak evil of me. When will he die and his name perish? And if he comes to see me, he speaks lies. His heart gathers iniquity to itself. When he goes out, he tells it. All who hate me whisper against me, against me, they devise my hurt. An evil disease, they say, clings to him, and now that he lies down, he will rise up no more. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be merciful to me and raise me up, that I may repay them. By this I know that you are well pleased with me, because my enemy does not triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity and set me before your face forever. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel." From everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. If you remember last week in the first verse of Psalm 41, it says this, Blessed is he who considers the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. And so we were talking about the idea of is it worth serving and loving other people when we consider those who may be poor in many different situations, who are without resources, who are poor in spiritual aspects, physical aspects, financial aspects, relational aspects, whatever that may be, is it worth the trouble that comes along with it? Is it worth the effort and the energy to go along with it? Can we trust God even when we seek to serve those in difficult places and difficult circumstances and difficult times? Is God faithful to us in those moments? And last week we began that answer to be an emphatic yes, that He is a deliverer. He is one who strengthens us and encourages us in those moments and sustains us to allow us to be the people and to be the church and to do the things that he calls us to do. But this week, we see that there's a potential when we seek to love our neighbors, when we seek to care for each other and care for those outside of the church, there's a potential for it to even get worse. There's a potential for it to be even more discouraging and more difficult. In verses 5 and 6, it says this, My enemies speak evil of me. When will he die and his name perish? And if he comes to see me, he speaks lies. His heart gathers iniquity to itself and he goes out and tells it. 
So we see first that there are enemies of those who will love their neighbors. There are enemies of those who will follow God in all ways and in all places that will serve those who are needy. The world will come against us. The enemy himself, we have a real and present enemy. Jesus himself had an enemy. We have an enemy. He is alive. He is still able to come against those who will do the things that God would have them to do. And so that they're a real enemy. And that enemy desires death. If you notice in these words, he says, when will he die and his name perish? What a phrase, right? David says, there are people who are looking at him saying, I wish he were dead. That's really what they were saying. I wish he were dead and his name was forgotten and no one ever remembered the name of King David ever again. What a thing to say. How much hatred must you have for the person and the things that the person is doing and the God that the person is following to want them to be in that state. I want us to remember, and again, this doesn't seem all that encouraging, but it's a warning for us. It's a strengthening for us. It's a reminder for us to be strong and rooted in the word of God, that we have an enemy and the enemy wants our death. He hates us. And those who would be under his sway hate us as well. We need to remember something that's important though, because it's easy when we talk about these verses throughout the Bible, one of the things that we've warned each other about many times is to not always make them all about yourself, right? That the Bible isn't always all about you. Most of the time, it's about Jesus, right? And sometimes it's about you, and a lot of times it's about you and other people as well. And so it's easy for us to think, oh, I'm so hated, and Satan just hates me, and he's after me, and it's because if I were a less Christian, he wouldn't be after me, but since I'm so good, he's just on me all the time right? Here's what I want you to remember. Look in verse one. Blessed is he who considers the poor. He doesn't just hate you. He hates those who you would love and have influence on as well. And if he can stop you from loving them, then his hatred is fulfilled through you for him. Does that make sense? And so his hatred doesn't just stop for you. In fact, it was weird. I was thinking about that because I wrote that in my notes that he hates those who we would love as well. But the reality is, is in some cases, those who are not believers in Jesus Christ, some of those who are not followers of Christ, in some cases, we may be able to say, yes, he hates them, but we also must say he loves them because he loves them right where they're at. He loves them entrapped in their sin. He loves them on a highway to hell. He loves them. He loves them trapped in that sin. He loves them to be helpless. He loves them to be without power. He loves them to be not following Jesus. He loves them to not be loving their neighbor. He loves them trapped. He loves them in shackles. He loves them without the gospel. That's the way he loves them. And so he hates when you seek to bring the opposite. When we seek to bring freedom to the slave or the captive, when we seek to bring joy to those who are suffering, when we seek to bring help to those who are powerless, he says, I don't want those people out of those situations. I'd rather they stay. So he comes against us. He says, I would rather you dead. I want to remind you this morning that I think for the believer, there are multiple ways with which we could be dead, if you will. One certainly is the physical death, right? If we physically die, we don't have any impact on other people anymore, right? But I think there's a couple of other things. And these are things that I've seen throughout the years being a pastor, seeking to help and to love people and failing at that many times. But there are times in certain situations in our lives where emotionally, we may be dead, where we begin to just shut down and say, I just can't do this 
anymore. If I help one more person and they turn their back on me, if I help one more person and it's painful, if I follow and go in one more situation, if I encounter one more relationship that I have to lose, if there's one more thing that happens in my life, I just can't do it anymore. I can't take it anymore. And so we just shut down. And there are many Christians who emotionally towards those and maybe psychologically or whatever it is towards those around us, we've just shut down and we say, listen, I'm just going to protect me and my own. I'm going to take care of my family and I'm not going to worry about anybody else because I can't be hurt anymore because I can't extend myself anymore. And when we get to that place, again, the enemy has gotten us to that place where our service and our work for the Lord is dead and we're not doing what he's called us to do. May not just be emotionally or psychologically, it maybe spiritually. It may be one of those places where the enemy tempts to drift us off of the path that we're supposed to, that we begin to make compromises in our spiritual walk, where we begin to make excuses for not doing the things that we're supposed to be doing. When we begin to skip our quiet time, we begin to skip the time in prayer, skip the time in Bible study. When we begin to say, well, you know, maybe Sunday school isn't that as important. Maybe I don't need to be at church so often. Maybe I don't need a fellowship so often. And our spiritual life begins to grow dry. And when our spiritual life begins to go dry and our relationship with Jesus begins to go dry, our relationship with others immediately will begin to go dry as well. There are times in our lives where spiritually we just begin to wither up. Look what we're going to read next week in Psalm 42. In Psalm 42, in the verse 1, it says this, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God by the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? The psalmist there says, my soul is panting after you. Why? Because he's starving. He's withering up. His mouth is dry. And sometimes spiritually, we can be that way too. So it may not be a physical thing. Maybe it's emotional, psychological, spiritual thing. But we must remember that even that for each of us, that Satan is seeking to destroy. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, be sober and be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. We don't have time to expound all of that verse, but I just want to point out one thing. Seeking whom he may devour. Who does the lion seek after? When the lion goes up to the herd, do they seek after the strongest, fastest animal in the herd? No. They seek after the smallest, weakest, frailest. That's why he says to be sober and vigilant. That's why we must strengthen ourselves in the word of God. That's why we must seek the truth of the word of God because he's seeking after those who are easy to pick off. Friends, here's the other thing before we move on. If we see those folks, we must gather around them. We must seek to protect them. We must love them and encourage them and fight off the battles that they can't fight for themselves. And so we see even in verse six, it says, and he comes to see me, he speaks lies. His heart gathers iniquity to itself. When he goes out, he tells it. He seeks their death and he seeks for them to die through the lies that he would tell about them. There are very few things in my life and probably in your life as well that hurt as much as someone who would lie about you, right? The reality is if you want to talk bad about me, it's easy to talk bad about me with the truth. You don't have to make something up, right? There's plenty of things to find out about my life that you could slander me with that are absolutely true. No need to lie. And yet that's what happens. Look what he says in verse 7 and 8. All who hate me whisper against me. Against me they devise my hurt. An evil disease, they say, clings to him. And now that he lies down, he will rise up no more. Remember what he says in verse 3 of 41. The Lord will strengthen him on his bed of illness. You will sustain him on his sick bed. Assumably at some point around writing this, David was sick. 
He was in bed, sick. And this is what's said. is said that, well, he's sick because he sinned. He's sick because he's evil. There's an evil sickness that's overtaken him. He's not going to live. They begin to whisper about him. They begin to gossip about him, to devise a plan, to plot a plan to hurt him. Anything that they can do to discredit him, to hurt him, to shut him up. They say he has an evil disease. This is where it gets personal. The enemy doesn't work on just the outside. He works on the personal level as well. He has an evil disease. Something he's done has caused him to be sick this way. More than likely, the same thing that some of the people said when Jesus was hanging on the cross. Well, he must have done something to deserve to be on that cross. He's a blasphemer. He's a liar. He's a this. He had to have done something. Look at all of the other people. He's a robber. He's a murderer. He must be something. So they call you evil when trying to do good. Friends, that is a reality that we face in the church today as clear as we have ever faced it, that they will call you evil when you try to do good. Because when you speak on biblical things, they will call you non-inclusive. They will say that you are a hater. When you speak about the rights of unborn children, they will say that you hate women. That is the reality that we live in today. The Bible is as true today as it was when it was written then. There is nothing further from the truth, by the way, for those that love and seek to protect the unborn to say that they hate women. But it's a lie that's spread all over the world today. So we see that you will be lied about. You will experience your enemy when you seek to love your neighbor. You will have people lie about you and it may cost you a friend. Look in verse 9. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. The reality is, is that seeking to love Jesus by loving people and serving people will, at times, cost you friends. Now, what you may find out is that they maybe really weren't so much friends to begin with anyway. But maybe you'll find out that they were, and it'll hurt. I know from personal experience that it hurts when people look you in the face and say, because you stand on Scripture, I'm walking out of your life and never speaking to you again. That hurts. It hurts whenever you've, to the best of your ability, and admittedly failed a hundred times at it, sought to love a church member for years and years and years, and they look you in the face and say, I'm walking out. It hurts. It may cost you your friend. They may turn their back on you, but I want you to understand something, that if that happens, you are far from alone. I told you last week in the introduction of, this, of last week's sermon that this psalm is a psalm of David, but it's also messianic. In other words, it's about Jesus. It shows us a prophecy of Jesus in this. But I said that it was unique, and here's how it's unique. Verse 9, let's read it again. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. That's the verse. You say, well, wait a minute. I don't think Jesus did that. I don't think Jesus lifted his heel up against anyone. I don't think Jesus was a friend and turned their back on. No, this verse is about Judas Iscariot. This verse prophesies the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. In fact, we know that to be absolutely true because in John chapter 13, verse 18, in other places, it says this, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Jesus says that while Judas is betraying him. In Acts chapter 1, verse 16, it says this, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke 
before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. You will rarely find a prophecy more clearly mapped out in the New Testament from the Old Testament than this one. Jesus himself had a friend who betrayed him. I would call your attention to the fact that when Jesus quotes this verse, he doesn't quote the part, I trusted. He just says a friend because Jesus never trusted Judas because he always knew. It wasn't like Jesus was fooled. That didn't happen. But here's why this matters. Here's where you can begin to take a glimmer of hope. Because again, none of this sounds fun. None of this sounds encouraging. Here's where you take a glimmer of hope. When your friends betray you because you're following Jesus, because you're standing on Scripture, you are just as much like Jesus as you will ever be. We say we want to be like Jesus. We say we want to follow Jesus, don't we? We come in this church and we say those things. We proclaim, I want to be more like Jesus. I want to follow him. I want to do the things that he wants us to do. I want to be more like him every day. But the reality is, as many times to be like him is to suffer. To be like him is to experience pain, is to experience trial, is to experience disappointment. No doubt, even though Jesus knew that Judas was the guy the whole time, there was disappointment and hurt and suffering whenever he walked out. He called him his friend. Even remember when Judas comes and betrays Jesus, what does Judas call Jesus? Friend. The word friend comes up again. So what we see is that this shows that we're following Jesus closely. Take hope. Take hope that if things happen to Jesus and they're happening to you, it's because you're becoming more like Jesus. That should be encouraging. It doesn't necessarily make it easy. It should be encouraging. Look what it says in verses 10 through 12. But you, O Lord, be merciful to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you are well pleased with me because my enemy does not triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity and set me before your face forever. And so David, while David is experiencing this same betrayal, David is betrayed by a close friend when his son Absalom is trying to overtake him. One of his close friends betrays him. It happens to David. It happens to Jesus. It'll happen to us. And in those moments when people are seeking your death, when they're seeking your harm, when they're lying about you, when your friends are walking away, you can call out on the name of God and seek mercy from the one with which mercy is available to give. He says, be merciful on me. I want you to notice something just really quickly about this. It's interesting that in this moment, and this is a perspective that Christians have to have. We have to have this perspective because if we don't, we will get buried by the world. So when all of these things are happening to David, and even in Jesus's case, when those things are happening to him at his betrayal and ultimately at the cross, when he cries out for mercy, he doesn't cry out for mercy from the people who are doing it. He cries out for mercy to God. So in other words, David says, all of these people, all of these circumstances, all of these things are happening to me and people are affecting me. People are hurting me. People are lying about me. People are seeking my death. And instead of going to them and saying, hey, would you please stop? Would you have some mercy on me? Rather than going to the people, he goes to God. That's the perspective we have to have. Here's why. One, because those people don't care and won't listen more than likely. Okay? So it's futile. Unless they're a believer, if they're a believer, go to them as a brother and say, this is what's happening. But if they're not, lost people do what lost people do. But he goes to God because he knows that God, no matter what anyone else thinks, is absolutely, completely sovereign and in control. And so he says, God, I can't control anything that any of these people are doing. I can't control anything that they're saying. I can't control what they think. I can't control what the lies that they're spreading. But I know that you are completely and totally in charge. And so I come to you and ask for your mercy. That word mercy, the Hebrew is hanan. It means to be gracious or to show favor. And so 
in this moment, it's not necessarily talking about sin. Some of your Bibles may even interpret that gracious. It's probably a better interpretation. But what we see is that he's asking for God's grace, for God's mercy, for his goodness, for his favor. He says, God, I need you to act. I don't have any strength and power, ability, authority over any of these people. If you don't move on my behalf, I'm undone. And so he knows that God is willing. He knows that God is able. He knows that God will not leave him, will not forsake him. It says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. But I would encourage you to think about that verse. He says to let your conduct be without covetousness, to be content with such things as you have. Okay, those are good things. Don't be covetous, be content. I understand that. Why does he say, for he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you? It seems like he's talking about material things, and then he's talking about God not leaving him. Be content and not covetous in your circumstances and not of others. Be content and not covetous of other people's peace when you are in trial. Why? Because he will never leave you or forsake you. That is where we find hope. We find hope knowing that even in the middle of the most difficult, dark, confusing, frustrating, angry moments of our lives, he will not leave us. He will not forsake us. He cannot. He is not the good shepherd if he does. He will hold you up. Look what it says in verse 12. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity and set me before your face forever. I love that verse. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity. You hold me up because I can't hold myself up, because I can't walk on my own, because I don't have strength on my own, because I don't have any ability on my own. And so you hold me up. You hold up my integrity. Listen, it's in these moments when people are lying about you, when people are hating on you, when people are mad at you, when people are whatever, deserting you, where you have the opportunity to ruin your integrity. When the people are lying about you, it is very easy to say, well, guess what? I shall now lie about you, right? And when someone is angry at you, it is very easy to respond in anger back to them. And he says, God, uphold my integrity. Don't let me fall into the trap. Don't let my testimony be hurt. Don't let my words become nothing because my testimony is hurt and because my integrity is gone. God, I need you to hold me up. Again, why does he ask those things? We talked about this last week. Why does he ask those things? Because God is able, because God is willing, because he has before. And so he goes to him and says, hold me up. Uphold my integrity. Before we move on, one thing to remember, one more thing to take hope in. If this psalm is messianic and is pointing to Jesus, remember this. If Jesus cries out, verse 10, O Lord, be merciful to me and raise me up, remember, God did. He did raise Jesus from the dead. He did raise Jesus from dying from your sin and my sin. And the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is the same power that's alive and working and moving in the life of the believer today. If he can raise Jesus from the dead, he can uphold you through anything that you may walk through in your life. Verse 13, blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. It's important to recognize in this verse that it's not super common for the amen and amen. He says from everlasting to everlasting. He's speaking of the eternality of God that may you receive blessing, you receive glory forever and ever because you are forever and ever. You will not cease. Nothing can stop you. Nothing will hold you back. You will never leave. You will never die. You are eternal. He says amen and amen. He puts a stamp upon stamps upon this. He believes in the eternality of God. He believes in the desire for God to be glorified 
for all of eternity. He believes that God will be glorified for all eternity. That's where we take hope. That's where we put the bow on this. That's where we get the hope. Listen, church, God will be glorified from everlasting to everlasting, and he will do it through his providence in your life and in my life and in the life of his church and in the bride of Jesus. He will do it. Nothing in the world will stop the glory of God from everlasting to everlasting. And if my suffering is a part of that, if my difficulty is a part of that, if my loss is a part of that, then praise God, take hope in that, he will be glorified. If you notice how this psalm works, look back in verse 1 really quickly. Blessed is he who considers the poor. The psalm begins in blessing, and in verse 13, the bow tie on the end is blessed be the Lord God of Israel. So the psalm begins with requesting blessing from God on man. The end of the psalm says, God, you receive blessing from man. Why? Because that's the point. Because that is his point. That is God's point. We receive blessing. We receive strength. We receive victory. We receive help. We receive salvation, not for our glory, but for his. We walk through valleys of shadow of death so that he is glorified. That's the point. That's his point. And this is why that brings us hope. One, when we remember the point, when we remember that it's not about us, it takes a weight off of us to say, well, the suffering isn't about me. The suffering's about the glory of God, right? But it gives it a purpose. There are things in your life that you do that aren't fun because they have a purpose, right? Some of you exercise. It can be unfun, right? So sometimes maybe you go and you have some sort of procedure, some sort of visit with the doctor, right? And we think, well, I don't want to do this. You know, maybe you get a shot, but whatever. Maybe it's not even a big deal, but I know I don't like this. This isn't comfortable. This isn't good, but there's a greater good that comes from it. There's a greater end result that happens if I go through this suffering, right? And so you do that thing. It's the same thing. It's a perspective that we have to have as a believer. When we walk through difficulties and trials, when the world hates us, when the world lies about us, when the world seeks to kill us, we remember there's a better good. There's a greater purpose. It's the glory of God. And he lasts forever and ever and ever. And we will last forever and ever with him. And this is temporary. That suffering that may seem to be overwhelming your life right now, that suffering that may seem to be the biggest thing that you cannot look past. Listen, I've understood that. I've walked through that in the last few years. I get it. It's this thing and you can't seem to look past it. Everywhere you turn, it's that thing right in front of you. Remember, it only lasts for a vapor. And then you have all eternity to glorify God because of his goodness to you in it. That's the point. All of the suffering that the believer walks through has a reason in the end, and it's the glory of God. Take hope in that. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you, and on their part is blaspheme, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. If you suffer in the name of God, do not be ashamed but glorify God 
in this matter. When we seek to love those around us, there will be a cost, there will be difficulty, there will be suffering that comes with it. But when we serve well, we glorify God because he is our motivation to love our neighbors. We love others because he loved us. When we suffer well, we glorify him because he is our strength and he is the one who upholds us. When we serve others well, people glorify him because we become the answer to their prayer that God answers through us. So the question that we ask ourselves at the beginning of the sermon last week, is it worth considering caring for those who are poor physically, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, whatever? And the answer is an emphatic yes if your desire is the glory of God. If your desire is the glory of you or the church or anything else, I would say it's an emphatic no. It is not worth it. But if your purpose, if your heart is to glorify God in it, then I say love your neighbor. Love them the best you can. When you fail to repent and try to do better the next time, all for the glory of God.